day and welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. This episode we'll be looking at some of the activities undertaken and the impact left by Lady Jane Franklin, an unusual woman and an intrepid traveller. Jane was the wife of Sir John Franklin, Lieutenant Governor of Van Diemen's Land between 1836 and 43, and they were said by one source to have raised the colony to an intellectual hub during their stay. Before I begin, I would like to thank Richard K, Steve H, Judy S, Wendy K, and Lucienne, each of whom sent through contributions via the links on the Australian Histories podcast webpage. I appreciate your support so much. I'm so glad you've been enjoying the work I do. I have used the funds to purchase materials for this and the following episode, and to contribute towards the podcast hosting renewal fees. Our second anniversary approaches, so everything's up for renewal. Also, a grateful thanks to those who left some lovely reviews for the show and some very encouraging feedback on the Facebook page too. These all help promote the show and increase our listening family. Thanks again for taking the time. I love hearing that you enjoy the show. Lastly, just a brief follow-up on the Jandamara episodes. I did already fess up about having difficulty pronouncing many of the Aboriginal words in those episodes, but my patron Rob C made me laugh, noting that I had also got Derby wrong. (laughs) It could have been Derby or Derby, and I plumped for Derby. It's Derby, W-A. Oh, this English language, a constant source of confusion and amusement, eh? So today I wanted to do a show focused on one of the many notable women who've contributed to our history. Of course there are so many we might reflect on, but I chose Jane Franklin because we've already made brief mention of her in the Cascades episodes, where we reflected on the women convicts in Hobart. And visitors to Tasmania will often come across the Franklin name, usually associated with either Jane or John Franklin. So despite their short tenure in Tasmania, they certainly had an impact on the life and times of the colony. I wanted to just do a brief contained episode today before moving on to meatier, possibly multi-episode stories again next time. Producing these episodes during the weird period of lockdown, with libraries and universities closed, it's been harder to get access to the usual range of materials that I like to view. There is lots of stuff online, but much academic material is often only available for a hefty fee if you're not at a university. So I have chosen a couple of the best I could get, and because I'm relying so heavily on one book in particular, I thought I'd mention it up front. It's The Ambitions of Jane Franklin, Victorian Lady Adventurer, by Alison Alexander. Alexander is a respected historian, expert in Tasmanian history, and you may remember I used her work a lot in the Cascades episodes. As always, there is a full bibliography of the references I used on the Australian Histories podcast webpage. It's been an interesting exploration. I thought I knew a little about Jane, but in learning a lot more about her, I think I see her in a different light. So now, let's see what you think of Lady Jane Franklin. Jane was, I think, an exceptional woman for her time, 
but of course it was her privileged background that allowed her to do all the things she did, so we should look there first to get some context. Unlike the convict women we looked at in the Cascades episodes, Jane was born to a well-to-do upper-middle-class silk merchant in London in December of 1791. She was the third of four children. But misfortune can come to all walks of life, and sadly, her mother died when she was only about four years old, leaving her to be cared for by the housekeeper before she attended a small boarding school with her siblings. Though she began with what she considered a meagre education, she was naturally a confident, inquisitive and motivated young lady and was determined to continue her education under self-direction via inquiry, exploration and adventure. Alexander pondered if her rather tomboyish desire to physically explore and experience the world may have been moderated had she not lost her mother so early. Certainly, she didn't seem to exhibit any of the interest generally allowed to women of the era, like needlework, or an interest in babies and children, and so on. Though, as she grew, despite sometimes being somewhat shy and nervous in company, she appears to have played a master game in flirting. In what seems like a rejection of the Jane Austen school of ladylike behaviour, only one of her three sisters married young, as was expected of women in those days. Jane and her elder sister seem to have actively pursued a more independent and stimulating path, gathering knowledge by undertaking regular travel through Europe and attending London lectures, exhibitions and society balls to mingle with the elite and the educated. The full gamut of social and intellectual intercourse was open to them, without the restriction of being someone's chattel. While obviously adventurous, Jane maintained the usual formality expected of women and upheld the usual class barriers, prejudices and restrictions. Despite supporting, indeed even championing, these class and gender conventions, she was keen to ignore any cultural mores that would have stymied her personal interest in travel and exploration. And she did indeed undertake some quite amazing adventures, of the kind rare for women in her era. One source suggested that her, quote, unfeminine curiosity, unquote, led her to investigate many places where European women had previously not ventured. Her self-confidence and sense of entitlement meant that she never turned down an opportunity to investigate, simply because it may not be usual or seemly for her sex, though disappointingly she didn't often use her influence to make similar opportunities easier for other women. Though Jane may have had at least six marriage proposals and was said to have been an accomplished flirt, she seemed unwilling to give up her single life, knocking them all back, until her mid-thirties at least. Now one of her beaux who may have proposed was a doctor in training, Adolfi Boutini. Not sure if Adolfi had any special medical claim to fame, but, you know, a doctor. Her mother might have been rolling in her grave. But more interestingly, perhaps, was another of her crushes, and this time Alexander records that he was not amongst the many proposers, was Dr. Roger, author of the famous Thesaurus. Surely a man such as Roger could have found the right words to have talked her round, but apparently he failed to try. <laughs> so she was certainly mixing in stimulating company, including the future Prime Minister Disraeli. When, at 36 years old, she finally decided to take up a marriage proposal, it was, surprisingly perhaps, that of Navy man John Franklin, who Alexander recorded as being, quote, 42, middle-aged, stout, balding, modest, not over-bright, and the epitome of ordinariness in his person, <laughs> unquote. But her opinion brightens. But her opinion brightens. He was, in fact, a famous Arctic explorer. 
survivor of the ill-fated copper mine expedition, a gruelling attempt to locate the Northwest trade route, a man who had passed his ordeal into a best-selling book of triumph over starvation, cannibalism and death, in the name of discovery for king and country. Jane had met the Franklins and become a regular visitor to John's first wife, Eleanor, but poor Eleanor died from TB after only 18 months of marriage, succumbing just days after John departed on his next expedition, leaving behind their little daughter, also named Eleanor. His wife had encouraged him in the venture and insisted that he still go despite her illness, probably not realising how little time she had left. Alexander added to her description of Franklin, saying, In fact, he was very well liked. He was a kind, decent, transparent and honest man. He must have been saddened on his return and he adored his little daughter Eleanor. As he and Jane began courting, Jane must have seen right past the ordinariness of the now single Franklin and through to his potential as a pliable and adventure-tolerant companion. Apart from Arctic exploration, he had earlier sailed to Australia with his uncle, Captain Matthew Flinders, and the naturalist Robert Brown, surviving a shipwreck with them. He fought in the Battle of Trafalgar and then in the Anglo-American War and was afterwards championed by the almost sainted Joseph Banks. So with his understanding for the pull of an adventurous life and his willingness to negotiate relaxed terms for a potential marriage, perhaps he offered her the opportunity for a more unconventional union. He seemed to be a man with a willingness to support a more unconventional wife and a more unconventional married life. Certainly, his expected career trajectory should bring them some adventure and social elevation, something else that was very important to her, and he seemed to be supportive of her needs for continuing travel and involvement in a more stimulating life. Whatever was discussed, he seemed to offer enough to convince the previously married shy Jane, and they were married in November 1828. Alexander suggests he seemed eager to indulge her and to please his interesting new wife, writing, quote, you have only to make known your wishes, and they are obeyed, unquote. <laughs> well, that's a great start, John. And she immediately used her skills to promote the reserved hero to a more fitting place in society, becoming the main driver of the Franklin brand, providing the ambition he did not display himself. With a great deal of urging from Jane, Franklin requested a knighthood in recognition of his previous exploring on behalf of the Admiralty. And success! In the new year, they became Sir John and Lady Franklin. In 1830, Franklin took charge of a ship in the Mediterranean, and Jane joined him at his base in Malta for a brief period. But she actually spent most of the time he was on patrol, venturing to Spain, Greece, Syria, Crete, and to North Africa, where she accompanied a missionary sailing up the Nile. This was all highly unusual, particularly the travel without one's husband. But they were often apart, and sometimes completely out of communication for months at a time. She wrote about the discomfort of the bugs and the vermin, or the difficult servants and companions she had to deal with, but she was actually delighted to be undertaking the touring she desired, pretty much as she wished. When her solo pursuits were queried by other people, Franklin would support her choices by insisting that it was all undertaken with his blessing and consent. How much input about her arrangements he actually had is debatable, and Alexander records that they were together for only six months of the four years in total that he was on duty there. Quote, she relished travelling alone, writing, I feel every day what a blessing it is to go about independently, in my own way, without etiquette or observance. Unquote. And it must have been liberating. 
But if she were to remain a married woman, she would perhaps have to build more of a partnership with her husband, and their next posting was to provide just such a conducive environment. Franklin was hopeful of more exploration, but was instead offered a second-tier administrative post in Antigua. He turned this down, not providing enough challenge or reward perhaps to take him from his naval career. But soon he was offered the post of Lieutenant Governor of Van Diemen's Land. This was a much more senior and prestigious post, and Jane was delighted to join him in the task of shaping the young colony. Far from seeing it as a posting to the end of the earth, Jane wrote, quote, Australia, where to breathe the very air is happiness, where sickness is turned into health, and existence is in itself enjoyment, unquote. A good many of the convicts sent there may not have had the same level of enthusiasm, but for some, perhaps, it was at least a potential opportunity to rise from the squalor of the prison hulks or slums of England and Ireland. Certainly for the upper classes there were boundless opportunities, and there would be a lot to discover and explore for the likes of Jane. Franklin's daughter, Eleanor, had spent many of the intervening years in the care of his sister, Jane never quite getting the hang of being a warm and welcoming stepmother, or being prepared to give up her travels. This time, though, she would need to bring Eleanor along with them and attempt to create the family setting that Franklin had been yearning for. It was a long voyage out, but Jane seemed keen to enjoy and experience all aspects of the journey, recording the sea life that they saw, or caught and killed, some of which she actually harpooned herself. Though she had lifelong, occasionally debilitating health problems, possibly stress headaches or similar, she was generally in good health on the journey though she apparently recorded that the medical leeches that she'd brought along with her appeared to be dying, so she was grateful to be, quote-unquote, suffering from my head, <laughs> so she could apply them and thus restore their health too. Ooh, yuck. The Franklins arrived in Hobart on January 5th, 1837, with all good intentions to contribute positively to improving the penal colony. As was usual, Sir John, as the governor, disembarked the following day to cheering crowds and the official gun salutes and troop presentations, marking a great occasion. Meanwhile, Jane disembarked privately, in the manner of a demure governor's wife, and her domestic party made their way to Government House. The settlements in Van Diemen's Land had been rough and rowdy in the early days, with many a dodgy character in charge but after the very firm and organised Governor Arthur had arrived in 1824, greater order was achieved there. The more attractive environment and free labour from convicts then brought larger numbers of free settlers, balancing the society and creating a more familiar working environment for commerce and development. While Arthur may not have been universally loved by the people of Van Diemen's Land, and he was using his office to line his own pockets, they at least appreciated the evolution of the colony in his time and he was said to be the darling of the British overlords, after a long string of less than moral, competent, and more obviously corrupt governors before him. So Franklin had big boots to fill, really, trying to balance and assimilate the 43,000-strong population, then consisting of a growing free settler cohort, along with a large contingent of ex-convicts, in a period of the highest ongoing new convict arrivals. Alexander described Van Diemen's Land at that time as having, quote, a veneer of normality and respectability, unquote. Jane would no doubt be compared to the very competent and vibrant Eliza Arthur, and a governor's wife was expected to be supportive and ornamental. Jane's personal interests and pursuits, and her husband's natural reserve, would be an adjustment for the community. 
Not content to remain a passive wife, she was determined to be involved in shaping the future of the infant colony during her husband's term of office. But she was well organised and she knew what was required for her husband to meet expectations as a governor. And the functions she arranged at Government House to introduce themselves to Hobart were initially a big success. Later, though, she began to put a few noses out of joint. Hanging on a little too tightly, perhaps, to her rigid sense of British social structure, she offended a number of important people in Hobart by withholding invitations or by snubbing them at gatherings. As Alexander put it, quote, In Britain, social distinctions were clear. Only the gentry, ladies and gentlemen would be asked to government house. In Van Diemen's Land, social distinctions were more fluid and pure-bred gentry scarcer. People of less exalted origins, who made money and gained influence, should have been invited, especially after the Franklins had announced on their arrival, rather rashly, that they wanted to do away with distinctions, unquote. But she really did not actually want to do so. In fact, Jane divided the potential guests into four levels, and their ranking would determine which of the activities at Government House they might be eligible to attend. Only the highest for the formal functions, relaxing a little for the lower rungs and less important functions. It's hard to imagine, I know, but it proved to be an offensive arrangement. Mind you, not everyone was keen to come along to Jane's soirees anyway. While there was some interest in her intellectual dinners, many just wanted to attend a convivial ball, ready for fun. There was even less public enthusiasm for the educational talks she hosted, some finding them tedious and preachy though certainly there was a core of people who did enjoy these, and so she felt she was addressing both the social and the intellectual needs of the role. The governor and his wife were also expected to patronise and support community groups and activities, but Jane herself was often unenthusiastic about getting involved if they were outside her usual areas of interest, though she was generous in providing money for the causes and cultural developments she was interested in. Alexander described her performing her governor's wifely duties, quote, acceptably, and in general she was described in the role as, quote, affable, welcoming and charming, unquote, to her own social circle at least. What really set her apart from many women of her time was her ongoing desire to explore and to learn about the new environment she had come to, despite the difficulties of travel across wild and rugged country. And she did make some astounding ventures into the Australian bush, which takes a lot of determination and stamina for a 45-year-old woman in a long dress. The contradiction is she didn't always appear to possess much strength or resilience. Rather, she was known to sometimes display a nervous and sensitive temperament, though perhaps this applied more often when she had to perform the public duties required. Certainly, she seemed less bothered by the discomforts of travel than by the irritations in her domestic arena. Migraines regularly confined her to bed rest for days at a time, so her travel, often without her husband and with only a small crew of companions, surprises me because of the exertion it would have required. But she would always force herself onwards rather than miss an opportunity to explore. For example, in January of 1841, she was travelling to South Australia and she climbed Mount Gawler. For our international listeners, January is generally a very hot time of the year in that region, Temperatures well above 30 degrees Celsius or 86 Fahrenheit are common. Her stepdaughter, Eleanor, who also accompanied her, wrote of the 32-kilometre, that's 20-mile walk, up the mountain, quote, Mama was bruised, our feet swollen, and skin off in many places. We were tired out, but the next day we went up another steep hill, unquote. 
Interestingly, Jane did not care for the walking in itself. She was not interested in strolling about each day for the joy of it, for example, only that it facilitated her being able to get out to explore. It's worth noting, for some of this exploration of the wild, she was carried in a chair supported on long poles, lugged by various porters or other lackeys. Perhaps not an unusual thing for women in the day, though. And something that might be brought back, in my opinion. (laughs) Just a few weeks after their arrival, the Franklins undertook their first formal and accompanied tour of their new environment, meeting and greeting along the way. But by Easter, with Franklin accompanying her, she was able to undertake more of the discovery-type travel that she preferred, journeying to the Port Arthur penal settlement for a good old sticky beak. She was pleased to have every detail pointed out. It was apparently raining heavily, but she was undeterred, surprising her hosts with her desire to continue seeing all. Over the following days, she reviewed the prisoner accommodation and food, the solitary cells, the stores and gardens, the local fishing spots and the public house. She visited Point Poor Boys Reformatory, the settlement workshops and even inspected the water supply facility. Everything was of interest to her. In December of her first year in Hobart, she climbed Mount Wellington. Mount Wellington was given that name in 1822 in honour of the Duke of Wellington, hero of Waterloo fame. But it was known to the indigenous people of the area as Onganyaleta or Puraneti. 1792 saw Bly name it on his charts as Table Hill, and Don Castro, travelling the same year, reported it as Le Plateau. 1793, Lieutenant John Hayes recorded it as Skidor. 1804, Lieutenant David Collins, who was settling the Risdon Cove, called it Table Mountain. Mount Wellington stuck after 1822, and I'm guessing even if you've never visited Hobart, you might be getting an inkling of its shape looming over Hobart. Rising steeply above Hobart Town, Mount Wellington's rather flat peak stands at 1,270 metres high, just over 4,000 feet. Formed during the Permian, Triassic and Jurassic ages, the most predominant features of the mountain are the dolerite columns, referred to as the organ pipes, (laughs) aren't they always? It had thick bush all around the approach and it was no easy feat to climb. Even a drive up there on today's sealed road is an adventure. Charles Darwin, who took the trek up there on a day out from the Beagle, on his visit to Hobart, recorded it as, quote, a severe day's work, unquote. By 1837 there was a rough track to follow, but all the same it was an unusual goal for most women and it required a strong resolve to attempt it. To have done so in the women's clothing of the day adds, I think, a degree of difficulty that further emphasises her determination. In the company of four gentlemen and two other women, they left Government House at 4.30am and they reached the summit at 11.30am. They set up a camp and admired the views, waking at 2.30am to ensure that they didn't miss the sun rising from their viewpoint. They began their hike back at 5.30am. Alexander reminds us that in that era... At 46 years old, Jane was considered elderly, so it was all pretty impressive, and they'd done so at a cracking pace too. Alexander recounts two women, Goodacre and Elder, who in 2012 dressed in the long skirts of the day and recreated Jane's walk. It's not known if Jane wore collots or some other trousers under her skirt, as she had apparently done when climbing mountains in the Mediterranean. But Elder and Goodacre reported that a skirt which reached to the ground was impossible, feet always being caught up in them, but a skirt length that cleared the shoes was workable, and indeed, 
quote, quite comfortable and practical, except on very steep parts, when the wearer had to hoist them up, unquote. It boggles my mind, though. I can imagine being driven mad by the inconvenience and weight of it all, given the comfortable hiking gear available to us today. In 1843, she was instrumental in building two huts, one at the Pinnacle and one at the Springs, which might help to encourage more women to climb Mount Wellington. And I was pleased to learn that, because there seemed little evidence that she had actively promoted other women to break the rigid social and gender shackles of the time, as she was doing herself. In December the following year, she travelled with a party by boat, intending to travel southwest to Port Davy. But, as is common around the southern coast, the weather foiled them, and her exploration was limited to Recherche Bay, where Don Castro's party had sheltered for some time during their exploration of Van Diemen's Land 50 years prior. Jane was keen to locate the fabled French garden they had left behind, but in the thick bush they couldn't identify such a thing. They did find trees with evidence showing inscriptions would have been nailed there, and Jane felt that these plaques must have been taken by the Aboriginals. It's probably more likely that in the intervening years travellers like herself would have souvenired them. And to add weight to that theory, she herself took some of the nails that were still present as her trophy. They also explored other sites along the Doncastro Channel. More impressive than a hike up Mount Wellington, though, was her overland trip from Melbourne to Sydney, at around 900 kilometres or 550 miles, mostly through bush, it was a truly epic and adventurous trek, largely away from any mod cons, such as they might have been in the day. Except that Jane actually brought her own bedstead with her. They would be a party of nine, consisting of Jane and her companion Sophie, another woman, and six men. Jane would be the first recorded white woman to undertake the journey overland. No mention of her female companions who also trudged along with her, though. Arriving in Melbourne, she spent only a couple of days exploring there, though to be fair, pre-gold rush, there wouldn't have been a lot to see, but she took the opportunity, for a husband, of making a couple of more formal representations to the good people of Melbourne, before departing on April 6th, with their heavy supplies and luggage loaded on wagons. Stopping at homesteads or settlers' huts, Jane often interviewed the occupants, They would make camp, pitching a tent for the ladies, while the men made do with a tarp shelter. It looks like they averaged about 24 kilometres, that's uh, 15 miles a day, and the men shot birds after making camp, which they either used for their meal, including ducks, swans, cockatoos and even magpies, or sometimes kept them for specimens. They had the occasional rest days, but otherwise they kept moving, even on the Sabbath, which didn't seem to bother Jane, but would have been an issue had Franklin been with them. They had some trepidation moving through the less settled areas, but it seems the Aboriginals they met as they moved further north were all friendly. They reported the odd bit of excitement, though, such as a charging bull once, and other incidents, including various persons falling from horses or wagons. Quote, tempers sometimes frayed, unquote, as one could imagine, travelling in close quarters under difficult conditions day in, day out. And the young Sophie apparently developed quite a crush on Henry Elliot. And then there was the description in one of the travellers' diaries about them all watching an Aboriginal man climbing a tree to look for possums, dressed only in a shirt and jacket. (laughs) The view must have got more and more confronting for the ladies. (laughs) Wow, this trip really had it all. Bare buttocks, romance, adventure, tension, interesting terrain. What more could an adventurous Victorian lady want? Reaching Yass at the end of April, she was disappointed that civilization was approaching. 
The food and washing facilities may have been welcomed, but she was then forced back into acting as Lady Franklin, the governor's wife, on reaching the towns. At Goulburn, the larger party dispersed, with Jane, Sophie and Henry Elliot continuing together, arriving in Sydney on May 18th, to be welcomed by the Gibses at Government House there. Though Franklin was keen for her to head straight back home to Tasmania, she was interested in staying on a bit longer to explore Sydney and its surrounds. She took the opportunity to hop a boat north to Port Stephens, and after another spell at Government House, then headed off to explore the Hawkesbury, her audacious travel being reported in the Sydney papers. Being a lady, her behaviour was unusual, but the papers seemed to consider her actions as her undertaking research in the colonies, and therefore it was generally an impressive and commendable activity. But by the time she sailed for Hobart on July 16th, she had well and truly worn out her welcome at Government House, though. <laughs> the Hobart press were more divided, some being proud of her intrepid activities, Others wondering, quote, why would Lady Franklin leave her comfortable home and subject herself to the toils and terrors of the bush? Instead of a five-month absence, a governor's wife should be fulfilling her official duties at home, unquote. Oh, pfft. But explore she did. In December 1840, she took the opportunity of a visit to South Australia, a convict-free colony set up in 1834. Once again, she was welcomed at Government House there by the Gawlers, Apparently she was not impressed with little Adelaide, though if her more religious husband had been with her, he might have appreciated what would become known as the City of Churches. She then managed a week-long camping trip to Encounter Bay, and on the boat trip home to Hobart, she was taken via Port Lincoln in the Spencer Gulf, where she suggested her husband would want to create a monument to Matthew Flinders, his uncle and the man who had charted and named the area on the naval maps. It must have been then that she climbed the previously mentioned Mount Gawler. Now, just to prove that she must be considered a bona fide explorer, she is recorded as eating minced porpoise on the voyage home. Ugh, gag. I don't know, they just ate everything, didn't they? This trip she was away from her wifely duties for six weeks. Almost as soon as she returned, she took off again. The papers must have been beside themselves. The opportunity for a trip to New Zealand arose. In 1841, New Zealand had only recently become a colony, the Treaty of Waitangi being signed only the year before. She visited Wellington, then called Port Nicholson, and a French settlement near present-day Christchurch. It was there that she had a fall and injured her leg, but she continued on with her travels, being conveyed in the chair, carried by Maori porters. She finally began her return trip towards the end of May. That's a lot of wilderness travel for a lady of her time, but I think the most impressive trip was to the west coast of Van Diemen's Land in 1842. This area remains today an exceptionally beautiful but very challenging wilderness. This trip Franklin would join her under the pretext of scouting for suitable sites for a convict probation station, and the walk itself was intended to be an eight-day, 106-kilometre or 66-mile trek from Lake St. Clair to the Gordon River and the Macquarie Harbour area. The track they would take was cut for them by James Calder, the Surveyor-General of the Colony of Tasmania. Again, she would be recorded as the first white woman to do so, her companions once again failing to get a Guernsey. Those who have hiked the overland track in Tassie will know the place can be cold and damp, leachy, prickly, muddy and quite rugged, even on a highly maintained and well-walked track like that. 
I don't believe Calder's track, used by Jane's party, remains open, though there are possibly sections surviving. Looking at the park's map, there is a Jane River track, Frenchman's Cap track, and Eagle Creek track, and all have sections in the area that they might have travelled, so maybe these were remnants of that route. Anyway, certainly their route would have passed through some very rugged terrain, now within the Franklin Gordon Wild Rivers National Park. They will have travelled by horse and wagon from Hobart to Lake Sinclair, a major trip in itself actually, without a modern cosy car, before their party of 28 set out on April 2nd, starting their expected eight-day trek. The party included three constables and 17 convicts who would port their gear. They also carried Jane in her chair as she was unwell on that first day, though she was forced to walk a few days later when one of the other women became ill and required the carriage. While Jane may have been carried some of the way through that difficult section, even so it was an impressive activity for all the women in her party, given the times, particularly as the other women may have been less enthusiastic participants than Jane herself. In fact, it was impressive for the men. Nonetheless, Calder noted she travelled with excessive gear and would not be persuaded to leave any of it behind, so he was forced to arrange for the men to carry it all. It's beyond me how they managed, without lightweight engineered carrying equipment, but obviously they were made of sterner stuff. The weather was wicked too, raining for 18 days straight, as they made their way through, quote, impervious forests, rugged mountains, tremendous gullies, impetuous rivers and torrents, and swamps and morasses, unquote. Consistent rain is not all that unusual for Western Tassie, but 18 days straight would depress even the most intrepid hiker, surely. That area is almost always wet underfoot, with boggy vegetation that holds the water, so I can just imagine how hard going it was. And they made slower progress than expected, forcing Calder and some of the convicts to return more than once to bring in more supplies. Around the base of Frenchman's Cap they were socked in by hail and snowfall for a week, all equipment and bedding soaked and all potential firewood waterlogged. Modern-day hikers may have had a similar experience there. It's a very unforgiving environment. However, Calder reported both Franklin and Jane remained, quote, unremittingly cheerful, unquote. Well, what wonderful hiking companions then, in those circumstances. Alexander also reported that the convicts in the party became inordinately fond of Franklin too, praising him for years afterwards. On one occasion when it was suggested that their rations be cut, Franklin insisted that all in the party must be treated the same. This will have been an unusual experience for the convicts, being treated as equals. When a swollen river could not be crossed, by traversing a fallen log expected to work as a bridge, one of the convicts, a shipwright, fashioned a canoe out of a tree trunk, though the process it took a couple of days, delaying them further and putting more pressure on the rations. Walking the area between the Franklin and the Gordon Rivers, one of the convicts clearing the track ahead was blinded by a sapling across the track, and everyone was most upset. It had become quite a marathon slog, and it was taking its toll. On finally reaching the point on the river where the boat was fortunately still waiting, Franklin's party boarded. But Calder and his mighty porters turned around to trudge back along the rugged terrain they had just covered. At least they were no longer carrying Jane and her requirements. But he was very pleased to have completed, quote, the most troublesome duty of my career, unquote. <laughs> Poor fella. The boat allowed exploration of the Gordon River and they visited the old penal station site at Macquarie Harbour. 
When they were finished there, they found themselves further delayed from leaving Macquarie Harbour by contrary winds, and once again provisions on board began running low. Now seriously overdue, when they did finally make it out through Hell's Gate into the west coast open water, they came across a larger boat which had been sent out to search for them. While Jane and Franklin insisted it was a worthwhile and invigorating trip, others felt it had been, quote, gruelling. Sergeant O'Boyle said he was so shattered by its hardships that he did not enjoy an hour's health for the rest of his life, unquote. How do you think you would have fared? I know I would have been soaking after the second day of continuous rain. But the Franklins were still up for more. The larger ship took them south and around to Port Davy, where they observed and established the location of the southwest cape, arriving back in Hobart on May 24th, to great relief. Many thought they might have starved in the bush or drowned on the way back given the long delay. Again, while most people applauded their adventurous spirit, with special praise for Jane having coped with the rigours of the journey, though note that the other less regal women who also travelled with her got no kudos, Others felt it had been an absurd exercise, costing the colony unnecessary expense and leaving them ungoverned for far too long. Quote, we do not want a governor to go blundering through the bush in search of the picturesque. Unquote. So that's all pretty inspiring, but between her explorations she was able to contribute to the culture of Hobart and its surrounds in a more practical way. With her personal interests and private funds, she made a number of cultural contributions that would serve the naturalist, scientific and artistic communities of Tasmania well. Hobart had a mechanics institute that promoted, quote, useful and scientific knowledge, unquote, but it was pretty stagnant by the time the Franklins arrived. They revived some active interest, forming a small private scientific society, the Tasmanian Society and by October were holding meetings and lectures and sharing papers on varied topics, ranging from the rotary steam engines to the blood of the platypus, from magnetism to marsupial pouches. It was all very stimulating. Alexander wrote, quote, There was a palpable feeling that members were making new discoveries in a strange place, unquote. While the society was always most active when she was about to promote and organise it, it eventually morphed into the first Royal Society for the Advancement of Science outside of Britain, and the scientific journal it produced, published from 1841, continued on as the Papers and Proceedings of the Royal Society of Tasmania. As early as 1839, Jane purchased 130 acres, or 53 hectares, at Lena Valley, near Hobart Town, which she called Ancanthe, Blooming Valley. There she began creating botanical gardens with a focus on Tasmanian natives. She also commissioned a building in the style of a Greek temple to encourage the colony's scientific and literary pursuits. It housed a library and museum, which contained much of the material that she'd been collecting during her stay. But sadly, that collection was dispersed in 1853. She had also been interested in the development of agriculture in the colony, and she took an interest in the cultivation of apples. In an odd twist, the temple building was later used for housing apples. <laughs> so wonderful symmetry there. The building itself remains today as the Lady Franklin Gallery at Acanthe Park and is currently operated by the Art Society of Tasmania. The capacity to provide a good education was high on her list of necessities and Franklin did see in the development of state education in his tenure, but she thought the society boys would benefit from more high-quality education. And note again, despite her frustration at her own limited education, she did not promote the same opportunity for the girls. 
the foundation stone for Christ College was laid, but local bickering slowed progress and it was never completed before they left. A lot of the projects she started stalled, sadly. Perhaps her desire to see them through was never quite as strong as her desire to actually be out there in it, exploring for herself. Though there was one crazy idea that Jane implemented, which at least got off the ground successfully. Now look, she liked being out there, exploring, roughing it, being carried in a chair by porters, and not minding the inclement weather. But one really does not want to deal with snakes. In one kooky scheme, she hoped to rid Tasmania of its snakes. Not having an Irish saint to drive them out, she instead offered a bounty of one shilling per snakehead to any snake killer. <laughs> this proved to be a very popular pastime for the convicts, costing £600 in one season. But the scheme was halted after concerns from those charged with controlling the convicts. Apparently, their concentration was not where it should be. <laughs> In 1839, she was personally involved in an agricultural establishment for free settlers being created on land that she'd purchased in Hewan. Willingham offered free settler applicants 100 acre or 40 hectare allotments, an estate for the yeoman farmers, and she interviewed each of the applicants to determine their suitability. It was actually a very successful scheme, so she had done her job very well on this occasion. Jane did have some interaction with the women convicts, and in 1841 she did try to form a Tasmanian Ladies' Society for the Reformation of Female Prisoners, but it was never well received or successful. In fact, she felt that many of the reforms that others had been promoting, such as the idea of marriage generally having a good effect on the reforming the women, were misguided. She thought this would reward their bad behaviour. The possibility of redemption was low because they were all of the troublesome class anyway. Back in Britain, Jane had known about Elizabeth Fry, a true social reformer working with female prisoners in London, who later attempted to influence the conditions for female convicts in Australia. Fry believed kindness and opportunity was the most practical way to turn around women who'd been caught up in a cycle of poverty and crime. Jane did make contact with Fry, but they had fundamental differences of attitude. Jane was much more rigid, believing in the value of harsh punishment and the necessity of humbling the women to make them repent and yield, never mind if their approach worked or not. We spoke a little about this in the Cascades episodes. Though Jane was not particularly pious in her day-to-day -day life, she certainly thought all the working-class women should be. She was a fan of the severe work regime that operated in the female factories. Alexander notes, quote, While Jane Franklin thought talked and wrote a great deal about female convicts, she actually did little to help them." Unquote. For Jane, it was all about punishment, forcing humility. There was no empathy for their circumstances. But before I judge Jane herself too harshly, this was not unusual for the times, and she was a woman of her class and upbringing. Her energy, instead, was directed towards general improvement of the cultural elements of the society, perhaps hoping to raise the tone in general. Though in the short term, this is unlikely to have had a positive impact on the convicts and the working class women of the time. Now, after the very efficient and firm hand of Governor Arthur, it seemed that the kind-hearted and less politically astute Franklin found the task of governing challenging. A successful Navy career does not always transfer well into competent leadership in a civilian context, where one has to navigate difficult factional political intrigues. Alexander noted, quote, The governors had an extremely difficult task, Far from their connections at home, transplanted to an alien land of which they were often ignorant, 
often wedged between multiple local sources of power and influence. Paradoxically, governors were both colonial autocrats and London's puppets, unquote. Unfortunately for Franklin, he failed to see the potential for difficulty and to recognise the factions working around him. One contemporary described him as, quote, a very excellent and kind-hearted man, striving to effect all the good he can, but the sort of responsibility vested in a governor is quite out of his way, unquote. Oh dear. So, not really up to the backfighting and rough and tumble of a civilian political arena then. And while he thought to rely on the public servants around him, he failed to see how the factions within were working him, putting each other offside. More and more he came to rely on the advice and input from Jane, probably much more astute at the game, having learned how to navigate her own way in a resistant world. But it was this that actually brought him the most trouble and, in the end, provided his enemies with an excuse to have him replaced. One advisor wrote that the cause of Franklin's weak governance was, quote, the petticoat influence. He did nothing without consulting his wife. He was the tool of every rogue who will flatter his wife, for she, in fact, governs. Her influence on him is wonderful, and he never does a single thing without consulting her. He is the weakest-minded man I have ever had to do business with, unquote. Now, you can see how, not too much earlier, this man might have been yelling, Witch! Witch! The opinions of women being so scary. Apparently, the offence of discussing matters with one's wife, listening to her advice, was a greater crime than that of the previous governor, who had used his office to personally enrich himself through land speculation. But this is an old story, isn't it? Always blame the women. And predictably, the speculation and complaint about her influence did cause the colonial office to act. Franklin was recalled in 1843. It seems they deemed Jane had, quote, undue influence over her husband and improper interference in the business of government, unquote. Poor old Franklin was just not suited to the nuanced political environment and the unconventional Jane assisting him was no acceptable solution for that shortcoming. It was all political posturing, though. The public were not much concerned about their governing arrangements and the Franklins were both remembered fondly one group recording, quote, Sir John and Lady Franklin had tried to introduce something better than a mere money-getting spirit to see the colony as more than a penal settlement, unquote. Franklin, at his formal departure on November 3rd, was given a cheering and affectionate send-off by a huge crowd. Despite the personal embarrassment the controversy might have caused the Franklins, Alexander reflects that there really was no actual impropriety in Jane working closely in support of her husband. She notes, No harm or disastrous occurrence resulted. Indeed, their relationship would have been unlikely to have been commented on had there not already been poisonous factions operating in the senior ranks of the public service when they arrived. Unlike his predecessors, Franklin did not involve himself in any financial or political corruption. And surely it is wise for persons in power to listen to a range of advice, including from someone known, trusted and respected. Her influence, and any impropriety in him relying on it, had no doubt been blown out of all proportion by the political ambitions of those around them. On their return to England, young Sophie reluctantly left the Franklins, returning to her own family. But in later years, when Jane was on her own, she returned to live and again travel with Jane into her old age. While young Eleanor often travelled with Jane while living in Tasmania, they fell out once she became independent, and they became further estranged after Franklin disappeared. She was herself adventurous, accompanying Jane uncomplainingly in the climb up Mount Wellington to South Australia and the like, 
Alexander records her ascending the mast on their voyage back to England, at the goading of the captain, though she was by then a young woman. Eleanor married a few years later and had several children, but she died young at only 36. Some of her children did manage a better relationship with Jane, though, as they reached adulthood. Jane had learned from the political debacle in Van Diemen's Land and was ever more careful to develop a circle of friends with influence who she might rely on to ensure she used the press to her advantage and to cultivate access and influence that way and to be more discreet, appearing to always adhere to the, quote, approved feminine role, unquote. In the years to come, these skills would serve her well. They had arrived back in England in June 1844 under a cloud, but by December Franklin had become aware there was another expedition to look for the Northwest Passage being planned. He was much more interested in pursuing that than trying to resurrect any political reputation, and so lobbying began. <laughs> Despite him being 58 and his Arctic experience being 20 years old, he was given command and he headed off into the north. The story of the Franklin expedition is a fascinating one, and there are several good podcasts I will recommend in the reading list if you have an interest in that. But suffice to say, it didn't end well. He and his ships disappeared. Jane Franklin may be known to us as the Tasmanian governor's wife, the intrepid explorer, but her fame internationally is usually tied up with her determined and unwavering attempts over many years to find out what happened to her husband becoming, as Alexander put it, quote, a world-famous heroine and the epitome of a devoted wife, unquote. She refused to let their fate fade unexplained, and she lobbied for the rest of her life to have the missing men found. Each attempt and search fueled the mystery further. Over 12 years, 39 expeditions were attempted to try and find out what happened to the missing Franklin boats and crew. In March of 1854, the Admiralty finally and formally removed the Franklin men from active service, declaring them all presumed dead. In October of 1854, Arctic explorer Dr John Ray, helped by information from the Inuit, brought evidence of their sad fate, though no one was pleased to hear it. You might be interested to know new evidence is still coming to light, even recently. Throughout the years, Jane was able to craft her vision of Franklin as one of the mid-19th century hero explorers, quote, an acclaimed success instead of a failure and possible cannibal, unquote, and also to promote herself as a bold but respectable, supportive and devoted wife. When she could no longer encourage further searches, she finally focused her remaining years on more travel. In her old age, she visited America, Hawaii, Japan and India, dying in England on 18th of July, 1875. Though she never formally published anything from her extensive travels, she did leave an edited archive which includes some of her correspondence and journals with detailed descriptions of the places she visited, held at various libraries including the National Library, the University of Tasmania Archives, and correspondence about the Franklin Expedition searches are held now at the Scott Polar Research Institute in Cambridge. Jane may have been one of the most travelled women of her time, managing adventurous trips to every continent except Antarctica. Alexander writes, quote, She skillfully negotiated the restrictions which society placed on women in this period, managing to win her own way while remaining praised as a pattern of charming femininity. 
Her accomplishments seem to make her an admirable feminist prototype, daring and determined, a wonderful woman to write about as she vanquishes her opposition, defies men and women who dare question her and overcomes all obstacles, unquote. Disappointingly for me, though, Jane was not one to champion the rights of all women. She was content with the status quo for others. Somehow she must have felt there was something special about her situation, but while she wanted to be able to do her thing her way, she was desperate not to be seen as some, quote, unwomanly freak, unquote, as Alexander puts it. As to her influence in Tasmania, one source called Jane, quote, one of the colony's most culturally erudite and forceful women, unquote, and she did work to promote the cultural development of the colony. Woodward suggests that largely through her efforts, Van Diemen's Land did indeed shine as an intellectual centre of Australia's colonies at the time. Of course, her class, education and financial situation allowed her these opportunities, and as it turned out, she married well, always a fortunate outcome. Her dedication to her husband's cause stood her in good stead as a respectable woman, her perceived overreach in Tasmanian politics aside. No doubt there were millions of other women in her time, with the curiosity, desire and zeal for such a life, but with no opportunity. While there are many more opportunities available to women today, we must acknowledge that the traditional barriers often remain for many. Still, when I travel in Tasmania, I love seeing all the names and places associated with Jane Franklin that remind me to be more adventurous. I hope you enjoyed hearing about her unusual life. Now this month, I'm going to recommend... The History of the Netherlands podcast. I have a number of friends who are Dutch or of Dutch heritage, and they are fabulous people. When I saw History of the Netherlands podcast, I thought I should listen and find out just what forces created these lovely clog wearers. <laughs> Imagine my surprise when I heard an enthusiastic Aussie accent narrating. The boys from Republic of Amsterdam Radio do a great job stepping us through the centuries to meet some of the characters who fashioned a boggy marshland into a vibrant mercantile society, a global superpower, and into today's Netherlands, a vibrant centre for modern-day liberalism. My fave bit in the episodes? I bet you don't know that was Dutch. <laughs> I'll put a link to the History of Netherlands podcast on my webpage at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. It's histories with an IES. Thanks for joining me again this month. I'm quite excited about the next couple of episodes, so please join me again next month to hear another part of our brilliant and evolving story. Have a safe and happy few weeks, and I'll talk to you next month. Cheers. Cheers.